me invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah again this week. If you can find your way to the 8th chapter, we're going to begin in uh, chapter 8, verse 20 this morning. In this Advent season, we're, we're taking each week to focus on or to think about who Christ is as he comes to the world and what he brings with him. Last week, we talked about how Christ comes bringing peace to a world of chaos. This morning, we're going to think about how, as the Son of God, as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, Jesus comes to bring light into darkness. And Isaiah, especially the beginning of Isaiah, but really the whole book, is full of these competing images, competing visions that God gives to Isaiah. And often they're set side by side to, to sort of draw out the contrast. Last week in Isaiah 1, we looked at this vision of chaos that Isaiah is, says is coming upon the people of Judah and Jerusalem during, during the kings and kingdoms of his day. But then in Isaiah 2, we, we meet that vision of chaos with a vision of peace and worship, and, and an exalted sense of what God desires to bring in, in place. This morning we have, a, again, a, a similar juxtaposition. In chapter 8, where we begin today, we're going to, to see an image or, or a time of great darkness described by the prophet. But as we move into chapter 9, that darkness gives way to a great light particularly light for those who have continued to trust and to hope in the words of God to them, given through the prophet Isaiah. Let me pray for us as we come to these two visions, these two passages. Lord Jesus, we believe you are the word of God made flesh. You are the light of of God come to illuminate our world. And Lord, we believe you have power to do that personally among us this morning, to take these words and apply them to our hearts and our minds, for them to translate into new realities in terms of relationships and choices and actions. So Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of all your people this morning be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock, you are our redeemer. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Move on here. Oh, too far. There we go. In Isaiah 8.20, we're going to see this, this vision or this time of darkness described, and I want us to be thinking about how do we respond when darkness surrounds us? How do we respond when darkness surrounds us? And what, what sort of comes up or is drawn out of our hearts during those times of darkness and distress? Isaiah 8.20, sort of picking up partway through the prophecy here. Isaiah says, consult God's instruction. Consult his testimony of warning, which is essentially this whole chapter, Isaiah 8. 
If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth, and they will see only distress, and only darkness, and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Isaiah 8 is, again, this picture devoid of light and full of distress. When I was a, a kid, I had sort of the standard issue fear of the dark that most kids have. How many of you had at least a mild case of, of that fear when you were little? And like every kid, that fear would usually strike just about the time I was tucked into bed, I was cozy and drifting off to sleep, right? The lights would go out in my room. And I would, would be fine until suddenly an image, a picture, right, would come into my imagination. Usually from a TV show I saw earlier that day or a story I'd been reading, right? I'd see a monster or a bad guy of some kind. And the next thing you know, my imagination would, would be filled up with that image. It was the only thing I could think about, right? And it would set my heart, it would set my mind racing, and I'd be under my bed sheets, right, in a panic, not knowing what to do, right? Afraid of what could happen in the dark. Now, most of us probably eventually grow out of most of that fear of the dark. But I would guess there are still things that you are afraid of, right? Things that when you think about them, they fill up your imagination. They set your mind racing. They provoke your anxieties or your worries. And for most of us, what we're afraid of is, is powered by that ability we have to imagine the future. Right? Fear seizes upon that ability to think forward and to imagine what could happen, what might happen to us. What could go wrong? And when we get a fearful image, when we get the wrong picture as kind of the focus of our attention, right, then, then fear accelerates. Fear grows and it, it takes over, right, and, and it paralyzes us. It consumes us. Well, in the eighth chapter of Isaiah, the people of God have all of these terrible images and pictures swimming through their minds and their imaginations. And they're tied to a darkness that they can sense is coming over them. And that darkness is the Assyrian army. Right? Judah, who primarily the prophet Isaiah is writing to, the, the southern kingdom and the city of Jerusalem, is this, this tiny little nation state, so to speak. But they are surrounded by superpowers. And in particular, the, the Assyrians at this time were, were growing in strength and growing in their designs to, to extend their borders and their reach further and further out. 
And in light of, of being neighbors to these superpowers, the people of Judah are afraid. Right? They're, in the fr- they're, they're afraid and, and they're in the dark about what their future holds. And they're, they're tossing and turning with these fears about what could happen. If you read the rest of Isaiah 8 there, I think you get the sense that, that the problem Isaiah is confronting is not simply that the people are afraid. That's a pretty natural response. Isaiah is more concerned about what they are choosing to do with that fear or how they're responding to those fears. Let me read just a short excerpt from earlier in the chapter. This is the New Living Translation, verses 11, 12, 13. He says to the people, The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else is thinking at this time. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like everyone else. Don't live in dread of what frightens everyone else. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. Make him the one you fear. He is the one who should make you tremble because he is the one who can keep you safe. Isaiah talks about all the the gossip in the streets, that there are sort of conspiracy theories abounding at that time about what will happen and who has power and what we should do and how will we respond. In their fear, the people are even turning to consult mediums and psychics and occult sort of practices, raising up spirits of the dead to ask them about the future. And the picture Isaiah paints is this kind of feedback loop where one fear, their initial fear of what Assyria is up to, feeds another fear, and they answer that fear with more fear. And it's this this cycle of fear giving way to fear. And if you live in that place of fear long enough, eventually it gives way to something even worse. Fear compounded over time gives you despair. And despair is this kind of settled condition in our soul, in our spirit, that assumes that really all there is in life is fear. That bad outcomes are the only outcomes. To use Isaiah's language here in verse 20, we become like people who have no light of dawn. No hope of what's to come. Or verse 22. He says, People who are in despair will look to the earth and they will see only distress, only darkness, only fearful gloom. It may be worse than just that condition of discouragement or despair is is what it leads us to believe and that's that we are all alone to confront these terrible things, that there is no help possible. It says they will curse their king, they will curse their God. And when darkness is all they can see, right, then then despair wins. it's, It's the final conclusion. It's a settled position. I wonder if there are places in our lives, places in your life today where despair is winning, where despair has become kind of a settled condition of the way you see maybe 
Maybe it's expansive and it's, it's heavy in, in every area of your life. Maybe it's particular to one relationship or one circumstance where bad outcomes seem like the only possible outcomes to you. And you feel alone navigating that, anticipating that, worrying about that. Despair is when all we can see is the darkness. And we wonder, well, is there any other option? Is there an alternative to despair? Well, I think back to that time in my life when I was afraid of the dark as a kid. And one of the things kids have working against them is how easily they become afraid. But one of the the things that I think kids have working in their favor is that even though they're easily scared, kids almost never give way to despair. They're terrible at despairing. They're good at getting afraid. They're terrible at despair. Because when things get really bad for a kid who's afraid of the dark, they do something about it. Right? When the darkness is overwhelming and they're tossing and turning in their sheets, most kids I know have two dynamite responses that almost always work. The first is they jump out of bed, they run over, and they flip on the lights, right? And if that doesn't do the trick, if their heart's still racing, then they run up the hall and they jump into bed with somebody who loves them, one of their parents. And that combination, usually some combination of turning on the lights and getting close to someone who cares for them is super effective. And I know because this still happens sometimes in our house at night. So this Advent, I'm, I'm putting forth this, this idea, this, this response that I see Isaiah speaking to as we move into chapter 9 here. And it's not uh, an attempt to sort of dispel or, or no longer pretend to, to pretend that we're not afraid of certain things. To pretend like there isn't any darkness. God's not asking us to stuff our fears. Right? Because I, I believe God actually has, has created us and designed us to respond and to react to things that are heavy or broken or distressing. We're, we're wired to react to those things because that's not actually the way life is designed to be in relationship with him. And so while God, I think, desires for us to acknowledge our fears and to name them and to be even troubled by the things we fear, what I see in this passage is that as we fear those things, what God rejects, what God pushes back against is giving space to despair. The scriptures n- never acknowledge that darkness is all there is. The scriptures again and again proclaim that even in the darkest darkness, God is present, God is speaking, and that his words and his presence bring light to his people. And so rather than staying alone and afraid and anxious in the dark, Isaiah wants to train us to be people who point our imaginations to focus on the light, to focus on the dawn, when the darkness is finally broken. Look with me at Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. This is the passage that 
that Sarah and Weston read this morning. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice, rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and they will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If Isaiah 8 is a picture of, of darkness, of, of the deepest night, then Isaiah 9 is a prophetic sunrise. And we see in these first few verses of Isaiah 9, if you look at verses 1 and two, Isaiah is addressing one particular part of God's people, the, the people living in the north of the country, in and around the Sea of Galilee. The areas that were these sort of tribal lands belonging to uh, the, the tribes of, of Naphtali and Zebulun. And there's a reason he does this. They, they are the northernmost part of the nation, and that means they were the first stop when Assyria invaded uh, Israel and Judah. Right? They were the sort of border towns. And like border towns in modern-day conflicts, you think about the Ukraine and Russia, right? The, the people living on the borders are the first to experience the casualties of war. They were the first to be dragged into exile. But Isaiah says that in God's mercy... In God's sense of, of justice, he says it's only fitting that the first people that were, were to taste the great despair and darkness of their day should also be the first people to taste and experience the dawning of this great light that is to come. Verse 2, he says, On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And he goes on to explain that, that dawning. You can picture the sun getting higher and higher in the sky. He says, joy will return to the people. Joy like in the day of a great harvest. Right? Freedom will come to the people. The yoke of their oppression will be destroyed, will be broken. 
He says all the garments of war, the, the boots of soldiers and the, the garments sort of covered in, in the blood of battle, they will be burned in a great fire. And these Galileans will get their first glimpse, right, of that long night ending and a, and a sun bringing them a new day. But while Isaiah paints this image for them about this breaking of the dawn, what he doesn't give them is a timetable for it. Isaiah doesn't mention an hour or a day or even a year or a decade in which this sunrise is going to happen. All he gives them is a promise that night will not last forever. The darkness isn't all there is. It's not the final picture. Isaiah doesn't give them a when, but Isaiah does give them a who. If you look at verses 6 and 7. He suggests that the, the ushering in of this new day will be connected to a son born, a child given to them. On whom, he says, the government will securely rest. One who will reign on David's throne in a new way. Reign with justice and righteousness. And of, of whose kingdom and of whose peace there will be no end. Right? In the same way that that night seemed to last forever, this new day will go on into eternity. Well, 700 years to wait for a sunrise is a long time. But seven, roughly 700 years after Isaiah was speaking these words of prophecy to Judah. We're given the account of a Galilean tax collector named Matthew, right? Who was up in that region Isaiah spoke to. And his claim in Matthew chapter 4 is that he finally witnessed that sunrise, or at least the start of it. Right, Matthew says that when this new prophet that God raised up named Jesus began ministering to the villages of Naphtali and Zebulun, and he went into the city of Capernaum and preached there in the synagogue, he says that Isaiah chapter 9 came into fulfillment, at least in part. We believe, as Jesus said, that he is the light of the world. That he is the one who will reign on David's throne with real justice, with real righteousness. But we also know that there remains darkness today. We still wait for the fullness of this promise to come. Right? We catch maybe day by day little glimpses of that glory of Jesus, the light of the world. But we have a choice. We continue to have a choice just like the people Isaiah's writing to had a choice to either fixate on the darkness or to set our attention toward the light. There's a Canadian singer and songwriter named Steve Bell. And he has a song called Keening for the Dawn. And in that, in that song, he prays this. He says, Lord, break the too familiar word. Hearing strains we've never heard. Send a double-edged sword to pierce through the pain. 
all that we shall see fulfilled, the dawning day we see your face again. Keening for the dawn as such stirs the memory of your touch. We are waiting, we are waiting. We, we wait, but we continue to point our eyes. We, we keen for, we anticipate. More than watchmen, Psalm 130 says, wait for the morning. We, we allow our hearts to long for that which is different, that which is other than the darkness that discourages us. We turn our gaze toward Christ. We are a people living for that sunrise. And so as we move through these last couple weeks of Advent, let me give you a last illustration that maybe would also be an application for us. We all live through about, what, five, six months of winter here in Vermont, give or take. And in the last few years, they've developed these little LED devices called light therapy boxes. Do you guys, anybody have one at home? What's that? Uh-oh, Asher's making some noise out there. The idea, at least in theory behind these, most of them are, are LED driven now, is that if you sit next to this very bright light for about 30 minutes a day, it will actually retrain your brain chemistry, right? To, to sort of simulate or emulate what it's like to be out in full sunlight outside on a clear day. And the, the more you do this, the more that, that your emotions and, and your sort of neuro makeup, neurochemistry begins to shift. And the way they recommend using these is to turn them on for the, the, the sort of first 30 minutes or so that you're awake during the day, those pre-dawn hours, and, and to sit there and, and to, to look sort of at but also past the light. And it will slowly change your, your outlook and perspective. We got one of these devices a few weeks ago, and it, it happens to be that I'm used to waking up in that time of the first 30 minutes or so of my day is also the time that I like to spend sitting quietly and, and praying and just sort of being in the presence of God. And so for the past, for the past two, two or three weeks, sort of been getting this double dose of light therapy. Right, in the same way that this little LED light is supposed to recalibrate the way my brain works. This season of Advent is meant to turn our attention to Jesus, the incarnate light of the world. The only one who has seen the face of God the Father. The one who reflects that glory to us. And if we choose to fix our attention, fix our imaginations there, right, it also begins to retrain what we love, what we desire how we think about things that distress us to be recalibrated by the Spirit of Jesus Christ that lives in me. So let me invite you to find some space. Maybe it's in those pre-dawn hours. Maybe it's at night when you have some quiet. But to imagine going into the presence of Jesus and bring him those things that you're afraid of 
Acknowledge the things that make you anxious. Acknowledge the things that you're angry about or that distress you or that are not as they should be. But also consider who Jesus, the Son of God, is and how he has promised to push back the darkness as he comes. What would it be like to answer our greatest fears with Jesus, the light of God, with the one who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace? Of his reign and his kingdom, there will be no end. Amen.